Good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Hello to everyone online, too. I know there's a lot of you going through sickness and suffering right now, and we just want you to know we love you, that we're praying for you, and we hope uh, healing comes in your life, and you have not left our memory or thoughts. And uh, the rest of us here this morning, I, I just want to say as well, um, as Mark has just brought us into kneeling, uh, I'm preaching on submission this morning, so I can't believe the timing of what Mark just did for us. We don't kneel very often, and, and as I was thinking, being kneeled down before God, I said, this is such a physical posture of submission, isn't it? And for how many of us was a little uncomfortable? <laughs> how many of us felt a little bit of pain in our knees as well? <laughs> yeah, if you, and, and I think that's some of the, the, the concept of, of suffering when it comes to submission as well. It can be uncomfortable, it can be painful, um, but that's what we're going to enter into discussion this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at a, a topic that if I had a choice, I probably wouldn't preach on. <laughs> but this is what happens when we diligently work through the Word of God, when we take hold captive every Word of God, and we allow the, the Scripture as a whole to speak to us. And so I'm going to be reading this Scripture for us together, and I just pray that we would receive it with hearts of humility. So 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen for you as well. And so this is what the Word of the Lord says. 1 Peter 2, starting verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake... To every human institution. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> None of us, right? We're already fighting against the text. We're already fighting against God in our minds. But let's keep processing it together. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we hear this text of Scripture this morning, and you speak to us, and in our hearts do not want to listen. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us, that it would bring conviction into our life, that you would speak to us through your word in a way that allows change and transformation of our hearts and our minds to take place. Lord, we first of all begin this discussion of submission by submitting to you, by submitting to your word, knowing that when we do so, it is there we find freedom. It is there where we find abundance of life. It is there where we find your true and perfect will. We thank you, gracious God, that you speak to us. We pray that we would have ears to listen. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here, Peter brings up something that we do not want to talk about at all. Amen? <laughs> the concept of submission. Now, he, he highlights two major themes here. He, he highlights a lot about unjust suffering, and he highlights this concept of submission. Now, he's going to talk a lot about unjust suffering throughout the letter, but here I want to focus on this concept of submission. And, and this concept of submission that Peter brings out is something that he even frames as something that is good for us. It, he frames it in a way that's actually going to bring honor and glory to God. And so, how is this to be? What is this sense of submission that Peter is talking about? Well, Let's begin with a basic definition. How, how do we understand this thought of submission, this language of being subject that Peter is getting at? Well, submission, of, first of all, is a submission to God, where we allow God's will and His desires and His agenda to shape our choices, our relationships, and vocations. And so it's another way of saying that we submit all of our lives to the will of God. We submit everything about us to what God would have to us, and that, in a sense, can be a beautiful thing, can it not be? I mean, usually when we're under our own authority, we just make a bunch of mistakes and a bunch of chaos in life, right? But when we submit to the will of God, it actually brings us freedom and abundance of life. And so this submission then brings this growth and maturity in our life because we're aligning our will and our freedom to God's will and freedom. 
And so what this includes is submitting to one another, submitting in many relationships. Sometimes it means submitting by giving. Sometimes it means submitting by receiving. Sometimes it means submitting by leading and other by following. But in any element of submission, there's an act of self-giving taking place, an act of self-giving. And the first point I want to make is that submission in Scripture is actually a virtue. Now, does our culture see it as a virtue at all? No, we, we see submission as almost oppressive. Submission is something we should flee from. Submission is something we should rebel against and revolt against. And, and in many senses, it's because we've seen so many abuses and injustices when people submit, right? And so naturally, we push against it. Now, as a caveat, if, if submission is a virtue, does that mean we submit to everything? And does that mean that we take abuse and slander and judgment and all these things and just sort of shrug it off? No, that's not what we're talking about, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us to a deeper understanding as we go through this Scripture about what that actually entails. But the, the Bible is clear that we all submit to someone. And so let's just brainstorm together. What are, some, what are some of the relationships and framework that the Scripture gives about how we submit and who we submit to? What are some things that we see in Scripture? Pardon? Yeah, children submit to your parents, right? Now, and done in a healthy way, a child submitting to their parents should be a very life-giving thing, right? Who here is wiser than their parent? <laughs> Maybe now you think you are, but when you're a little kid, your parent knows what's dangerous, your parents knows what's around you, they have a better judgment, a better concept of life, and so there's this blessing that comes from submitting to your parents, is there not? And especially that's what we parents keep reminding our kids of. <laughs> what are some other relationships of submission that we see in Scripture? Pardon? Yeah, employers, your vocation, and, and actually this concept of slaves, I know when we hear the word slavery, our mind goes to more the Americas and the African-American slave trade, but, but a slavery in a Greco-Roman world was, was much closer to a concept of employment where you could enter into slavery voluntarily or willingly at times. There were still grave injustices during it, but it is like a concept of employment. So we submit to our boss. We submit to our company. We submit to those who are paying our paychecks, right? What are some other relationships? Pardon? Yeah, one to another. Um, Ephesians 5.21, that's probably one of the most important ones that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he tells the church, he says, you guys are all supposed to submit to one another. The church submits to one another, it means we hold each other accountable, we're responsible to one another. We submit to one another out of what? Does anyone remember what the passage says? Out of reverence for Christ. We're going to get there. That's a very important concept. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a deep connection there. What are some other things that we submit to? Yeah, wives to husbands or even husbands to wives, a mutual submission in a spouse or relationship, right? 
You submit to one another. Yeah, to get, Len said the, probably the most obvious one that no one wants to say right now. I was just sort of feeling, uh, I thought it would be the first, but I think everyone's sort of awkward to talk about it right now, right? I mean, that's the very first thing that Peter says, and it's almost one of the last ones when he says, on to the emperor as well. But yeah, submission to governing authorities. And this is a season where this is the last word that we want to hear from God when we want to fight for our rights. So this is a, a very interesting, yeah, submission to governing authorities. And, and even the text says, subject to every human institution. Every human institution. So we're talking quite a broad generalization of what we're, we're discussing there. And so we have all this framework of Scripture of these relational aspects of submission. And what Peter is going to do is begin to give us a process as to why and how this submission really takes form. Now, I think before we jump into that conversation, we have to process and do some confession together. Because we have this blatant, obvious call to submission in many aspects of our lives, and yet, who finds themselves constantly pushing against it, right? Let's, let's just take, this is confession time. Let's put both hands up right now. Let, let's put our hands up. This is, this is confession time, right? Th this is coming before God and saying, you know what? We do not like to submit in any form or fashion in this world. That's our natural impulse. That's our natural desire. Now, now, why do you think that is? I think it goes back to the very beginning of humanity. How did the first humans treat God? They rebelled against Him. They did not submit to His own authority. We go to Genesis 6, a little later on in the story. What do we see all of humanity doing? Rejecting God, rebelling against His authority. What do we see through all of human history? A rejection of God, a rebelling against His authority. This is ingrained in our humanity, is it not? This is ingrained in our sinful nature as humans. And so we come to the question and we say, well, if we aren't even willing to submit to the God who created us, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is sovereign, providential over all things, who knows every unique detail about us, who knows what's best for our lives, who desires to love and show mercy and grace so that we can walk in that life, and yet we rebel against Him, what do you think it means for every other relationship? <laughs> it's going to be much easier to rebel. I mean, it's, it's much easier for me to rebel against my wife than it is God, <laughs> right? And so it transforms all our relationship. It transforms our whole perspective on life. And, and so we are humans, which means we rebel. Now, a little bit else about our history. What do you think some other reasons are that we have such a culture of rebellion? Well, even in our sort of historical church tradition. We call ourselves Baptists, but even what was the movement that Baptists came from? 
What's the general movement that's not Catholic or Orthodox, but Protestant? What's in the name Protestant? Protest, right? And so even in our, our history as a, a church movement, a, a Protestant, a protesting movement, uh, even this concept of rebellion and fighting is ingrained in our culture as well. And, and we move it more, I guess we as Canadians are a little bit different than the Americas because they fought against the monarchy where we more accepted it, but there's still even that historical element of rebellion in this. And I know even there's discussions today about pushing away from the monarchy of Canada and Britain. And so we have this innate sense of rebellion. Now, now even think about Albertan culture for a second. Is there some rebellion in Albertan culture? What, yeah, Cheryl's laughing in the back. What, what's the culture? I mean, to be honest, I notice this within months of moving here. What is some of the culture of Albertan rebellion? What's some of the mindset? I want to hear it from you guys. Then I don't have to offend anyone. <laughs> yeah, against the East. I mean, it's Canada against us, right? I mean, there's a separatist movement called Wexit in Alberta right now because we don't feel part of this nation. We want to push back and say, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to tell ourselves what to do, right? What are some other things? Pardon, Matt? Yeah, rebelling against the government for sure. You can't tell me what to do. I have rights, right? Don't come onto my property. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, guns as well. Yeah, you can't force me to take away my guns. This is my right. This is my possession. This is my ownership, right? And, and it's, it's a culture of, of independence, right? It's a culture of, of self-sustaining. No one can tell me what to do. I make my own decisions. I have my own rights. There is no authority outside of me, and there shouldn't be any authority outside of me, right? That's part of the culture here. And we can acknowledge that without being offended by it, right? And there's more I could say there, but we're just going to leave it at that. And so we have all these natural instincts. I mean, even from the time as young children, as young children, what do we do against our parents? We rebel. I mean, I was a horrible kid to my parents, and I confess and apologize a lot to them for what I put them through. Um, but, but we rebel from a very young age. And, and so this is something that we, we consistently have to be mindful and paying attention and aware of is we have this natural intention to rebel and to push back. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we follow everything blindly or that we submit to all things that go against the purposes of God or that dishonors God. But I think for the majority of it, it has nothing to do with that. It has to go to our heart of submission and our willingness to submit. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like a little, quick little personal test as we enter into this conversation to you. A little question. This is sort of a spiritual formation question, but how do you respond to authority in your life? How do you respond to authority in your life? Reluctantly? <laughs> yeah. 
How do you respond to an employer or a company or a boss? Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you undermine your boss's authority? I remember working in the sawmill. Our supervisor was just ridiculed and mocked on a daily basis. And he was just doing his job, and yet everything that went wrong, it was his fault. And all my coworkers, that was the culture that was built there is a mockery, a ridicule, a fighting against anyone in authority. And this is a guy that's not even the manager. He's not even the owner of the company. He's just supervising. He's just making sure everyone's safe, everyone's okay, that things are getting done. And yet even that authority we fight against. Uh, what about even church leadership? Hebrews talks about this. Are you someone who constantly fights against church leadership? Are you someone who's pushing against accountability? Are you pushing against oversight? How do you respond to that? What about even submitting to a discipleship or mentoring relationship in your life where you actually allow someone to speak into the sin of your life? See, what I so often see from people when I talk about a mentoring relationship or a discipleship relationship or some form of accountability is so many people push away from that because then they have to be accountable. Then they have to deal with reality. And that's a very difficult submission to make. Or what about submission to your spouse or friends that are trying to speak into your life? What does submission look like there? Or even, as no one wanted to talk about clearly this morning, but what about submission to governing authorities? What does that submission look like? Regardless of political affiliation or opinion of policies, I mean, we just went through an election which was absolutely pointless, but it still brought up a lot of conversation of accusation and slander. How do you talk about the prime minister? even when you disagree with them? How do you talk about other political parties even when you disagree with them? How do you even submit now to a political party that you might even perhaps disagree with? What does this look like? Or do you mock and slander those authorities? See, here's, here's again why we need a heart check here. Here's why we need to start analyzing the root of what's going on in our hearts and our minds. Here's where we have to allow Scripture to speak to us and to convict us and to sit in authority over us. Because if we don't even allow God to submit over authority over His Word over us, then we're not going to submit to anything in our lives. And so Peter calls the church to submission. And he says this, first of all, verse 13. Verse 13 says this. It says, be subject for whose sake? For the Lord's sake. 
Be subject, submit yourself to every human institution. Why? For the Lord's sake. And, and what he's talking about here is the honoring, the respect, and the authority of all these institutions. So he's talking about what we've been talking about. He's talking about children honoring their parents. He's, he's talking about citizens that have an honor and respect for their political leaders. He's, he's talking about how the church should honor their leaders. It's, it's talking about how employers should honor their employee, uh, employees should honor their employers. Um, it's talking about all these aspects of relational life. Now, here's what, another reason why I think we struggle so much with this, to be subject to every human institution. Because is there any perfect human institution? No. And we want to submit to perfection. But when you think about it, is there any perfect government? I was expecting a little more emphasis there. Is there any perfect government? <laughs> no, and there never will be. No matter what party's in power. No matter what regime is in place. Is there any perfect school to go to? No. Is there any perfect company to work for? Is there any perfect marriage even? No, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, you lovebirds are sitting in the back corner. <laughs> but we have this, this reality that confronts us that, wait a second, all these human institutions are drastically flawed. There is no perfect institution. And yet what Peter was reminding us by saying, for the Lord's sake, is that we can trust a perfect God working through imperfect authorities. Does that make sense? We can trust that our perfect God is working through imperfect authorities and that He will accomplish what He needs to do. Now, here's the hard thing. History is full of tyranny, isn't it? Full of tyranny. We can look at it from a, a government perspective. We can look at it even from a school perspective as we reflect on the residential schools. We can look at it from a, a company perspective, social structures. History is just full of tyranny. History is full of injustice. And I think that pushes us even to a further natural skepticism about authority. We have this natural distrust, this assumed corruption of all these human institutions of power and authority. I mean, who has some healthy distrust of authority, right? We all do. But what Peter reminds us of is that God calls us to react against these tyrannies in a way that is foreign to our culture, and even perhaps foreign to our own thoughts. See, our fleshly instinct against tyranny is what? Revolution, revolt, rebellion, fight. That's our natural response. And, and what we see is the, the politics of revolution and revolt has happened throughout all of history. I mean, it's just revolt and revolt and revolt and revolt, all the way from the story of Israel, 
even to the context that Peter's writing in under Nero or Claudius, the, the, the Roman Caesars, a revolt and rebellion over and over again. We could keep going to talk about the peasants' revolt in England. We could talk about the, the story of the Irish rebellion. We could talk about the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, on and on and on and on throughout history. It's just a cycle, cycle, cycle of tyranny, revolt, rebellion, and guess what comes around full circle? Tyranny all over again. At every period of history, there's been a movement of revolution and revolt. Isn't that fascinating? Does that teach us something about what it means to be human? It takes, takes us a long time to learn, or perhaps even we have never learned. <laughs> right? We have never learned. That's the crazy thing. And this cycle is just ongoing, and we're in this vicious cycle that humanity cannot get out of for some reason. And we see that not just politically, but we see that individually in our own lives too, don't we? We might even see it through our families of origin. And here's what the Scripture confronts us on. It says, Our, our hatred then of tyranny might lead us to act out in rebellion, in revolution, and I'm not saying that there aren't times and places where this must take place. But what Peter cautions us on is that we as the church of all people must be part of breaking that cycle. And Peter here gives us this third way. He gives us a third way to break out of this cycle. Because again, think about this, whenever a corrupt and tyrannical regime or person was overtaken by a revolution, odds are pretty high that they were just replaced by another tyrannical and corrupt regime, correct? That's why the history repeats itself. And, and what Peter is saying then is you as a church have to break the cycle. Why? Because we have never been able to fix the problem of sin. And so Peter says this in verse 15. He says, there's another way. He says, for this is the will of God. Couldn't be more obvious than that, right? This is the will of God. That by doing what? By doing good. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so this is how God frames His rule on earth as it is in heaven. By taking a people who are holy. What does holy mean again? Do you remember? Set apart. Set apart for the will of God. He takes a people who are holy. In other words, people who fight against that cyclical pattern that's repeated through all of human history. Set them apart to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
And Peter's saying that revolt and rebellion and revolution are not the only options, but serving the true God by living peacefully, wise, a visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than simply overthrowing corruption by replacing it with more corruption and evil. Peter says that's the revolution that the world needs to see. That's the revolution that will actually break the cycle and pattern of humanity. That is the revolution that is the will of God. And so this is the framework for which he gives. Now, here's what's interesting. He says this. He says, live as people who are free, again, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so here's how we function as humans often. Evil happens, therefore I get to do evil. They did something bad, so I get to react poorly to them. They did something wrong, therefore I get to do something wrong. And it just multiplies the evil because that's not justice in responding that way. That just creates injustice and more evil. And, and this goes on the grand scale, but I was even reminded of it this week. I mean, I had a basketball game on Thursday night in the city, and I had someone trash-talking. You guys know what trash-talking is, right? When someone's sort of saying things, mean things, or rude things, trying to get a mental advantage on the opponent. And it was fascinating to me because as I'm hearing this trash talking against me and my team, what's my natural impulse and response? <laughs> There's a lot of things I want to say there, right? There's a lot of things I want to respond against. There's a lot of things that would be producing evil upon evil. And, and so even in the, the daily battles like that, let alone the, the large things of life, there's always this temptation that when evil comes against us, we respond with evil. So if you're in a, an argument or a fight with your spouse and they say something rude, what's your response? You want to respond back. If you're in an argument with a friend and they say something disrespectful, you want to disrespect back, there's this natural impulse in all of us to replace evil with evil. And again, Peter's reminding us of cycles. What's the cycle that happens? Someone speaks evil against you, you speak evil against them. What's their response now? I'm going to speak more evil against you. This cycle, 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 cycle never ends, does it? Yet Peter's saying, you know what? You're holy. You're set apart. You have a responsibility to break the cycle. That doesn't bring justice. In fact, it escalates the problem. And so Peter says, you are actually free from that. That's the freedom he's talking about here. You're free. You don't have to live as slaves to sin. You don't have to live as slaves to rebellion. You don't have to live as slaves to revolution. You don't have to live as slaves to all the earthly, fleshly desires that we talked about last week that he was addressing. But he says, you are free from that. Therefore, you can break the cycle by doing good. 
you have the freedom to break the cycle. Now, now here's what's fascinating to me as I was processing this week. I look at this season and I, I look at it through the lens of a scripture like this and I, I want this text to read our, our cultural moments as well. And I don't want to overemphasize, but I, I have thought about this when, when we think of even what's going on with Alberta Health. And I've looked this season, and I've seen some say Alberta Health is tyrannical, they are evil, and we must rebel against them and fight against restrictions. Who here has heard that side before, right? And on the other equation, I, I see others saying, well, Alberta Health, God's common grace is working through Alberta Health to help protect vulnerable people and to protect hospitals and protect our medical systems. And so they are a good thing right now. Now, you guys sort of know where I stand on that. I don't want to share much opinions up here in the pulpit, but I think what's important is this. Whatever surrounds this discussion, we have to ask the question, what cycle is it producing? See, whatever our response is, no matter where we are in the, the, the perspectives and opinions of what's going on today, we all have to answer one question before God. And that question is, well, what is your response producing? What is your response producing? Is your response producing more evil? Is your response producing more injustice? Are you producing disunity? Are you producing deceit? Right? What did, what did Peter say early on in the letter? Put away all malice and all deceit. There's a warning there. Don't speak to something which you don't know facts, which you don't know truth, or what there's half-truth. You are deceiving people when you speak on things that you don't have authority to speak on. And so Peter warns, are you producing deceit? Are you producing pride? Are you producing arrogance? Are you producing distrust? Are you producing anger? Are you producing hatred? Are you producing mockery? Are you producing slander? Are you producing lies? That's the question that we need to ask because if the world sees that from the church, it does the exact opposite. Because the world is silenced of accusations against the church when we do what? When we do, what does the text say? Good. When we do good. And so we, we live as people who are free, but we don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We don't produce evil in our responses to everything. For this is the will of God that you should do good and put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, sadly, what we often do with this text is all the ignorant, foolish people are everyone except us, right? <laughs> which regardless, even if you filter it through that lens, which is most often not the fact, but 
it still has the question, what are you producing? Are you producing good? Or are you producing all these other things that Peter has warned us against? Now, a question that perhaps comes out of here, and I'm sure it's all on your mind, is, well, what's the role of civil disobedience then? Where does civil disobedience fit in? How, how do we respond to an unjust authority? Well, Peter brings up unjust authority in the next section, but what about ungodly authority? Because if, if all we do is read Peter and his letter, it seems to indicate that if we're under any abuse of authority, that we should do nothing about it and say nothing about it and basically endure. And to be brutally honest with you, in the context of Peter, that is in many senses true. We know there's other scriptures that speak on this matter, but I, I struggle to bring those other scriptures in. But, but what I want to do here is if we're talking about Peter in the context of his letter here, um, how do we understand civil disobedience in Peter's life? And so I, I, I want to approach this cautiously rather than just bringing all these texts out of context into this discussion. Let's just enter into this conversation examining Peter. Uh, did Peter ever practice civil disobedience in his life? Yes. Now, there's two ways that I can think of. There may be more, but for my study, I only came across two. What are the two instances in Peter's life where he practices civil disobedience? Yeah, he chops off a guy's ear, right? And so what's the story there? We see Peter, and he's with the disciples, he's with Jesus, he's going into a moment where the centurions are coming to take away Jesus, they're taking him to his crucifixion, Peter gets in defense mode, he grabs a sword from a Roman soldier, and he cuts a guy's ear off, right? And did Jesus say, good job, Peter, that was great civil disobedience, they were going to do something unjust to me, they were taking me to my death, you stood up for your rights and my rights, you protected my life, I am so proud of you, great job. What did Peter say, or what did Jesus say to Peter? Pardon? He rebuked him, and he healed the ear. Isn't that fascinating? He rebukes him for that. And so we would say, okay, Peter was practicing a civil disobedience there in a godly or a sinful way? A sinful way. Yeah, he, he did something that God didn't want him to do. He did something that was against the will of God, okay? So there's one example. And so that's Peter making a mistake on civil disobedience. What's the other example of Peter practicing civil disobedience? Yeah, refused to leave jail, but even more so, what, was, what led him to jail? What did he stand before the Sanhedrin about? He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And the religious council basically gathered him and said, Peter, um, you're preaching about Jesus as Messiah, is bringing all this upheaval. 
And it's making all these questions come arise from the people about who Jesus is and people are fighting in the streets trying to figure out who Jesus is and there's all this debate and you're creating all this upheaval in our culture. And so what we need you to do is stop preaching about Jesus, right? And how does Peter respond to that? He says, I will obey God rather than man. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to share Jesus to everyone, despite consequences, despite what the authorities tell me, because I need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and this is God's will for my life. And so, is that an example of a godly or a sinful civil disobedience? There's a godly, right? And so we look at Peter's life, and so we, we come to this text and we say, okay, well, there, there may be times and circumstances in our life where civil disobedience is necessary. And preaching the gospel is probably the most obvious one, and that is really, especially in the New Testament, there are a few examples in the Old Testament of different kinds of civil disobedience, but the only grounds in the New Testament, hear that again, the only grounds for civil disobedience in the New Testament is proclamation of the gospel. And so that means we better have a good definition of the gospel and what it means to understand what and why and when we need to practice civil disobedience in the life of the church. And so that's Peter's perspective. Now, now contemplate that in your own life because this has been a season where there's been so much turmoil and wrestling, not just as a community, but individually of what it means to practice civil disobedience. And I just say that as encouragement, just in light of Peter. Uh, Peter messed this up badly, didn't he? He messed up civil disobedience. He got it right at a time, but he messed this up badly. And Jesus is one of his most vulnerable moments. So let that be an encouragement to you as well. That even if you've practice civil disobedience in a way that wasn't glorifying and honoring to God. God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. His love is still there. His gentle correction is still there. He is still walking with you to advance the kingdom. And even Peter becomes the Petros, the rock, a core foundation of the growing of the church. And so let that remind you. Now, I'll go on to the next topic with the passage of 18 to 24. Now, here's what Peter says next. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to who? The unjust. What, Peter? What's going on here? Again, This makes no sense to us logically. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and unbeaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now again, when we hear the concept of slavery, we think 
primarily through the African-American slave trade. And, and there's some correlation there. And our modern ears obviously come to the point of injustice. This concept of slavery is a dehumanizing, horrific thing, which is true even in the ancient world. But I, I want to think a little bit more about slavery from the perspective of Peter's culture and context because when Peter talks about slavery, it is different than what we think of in our minds. It is a different concept. About one-third, even up to 50% of the Roman Empire was slaves. And, and yes, they had the dehumanizing where people would become property, but there was also an aspect of slavery in the antiquity where, where people would enter into slavery. And it could be for a trade. I mean, there was many aspects of vocations of slaves. Um, but it would also be, in many instances, someone entering into a, a slave relationship with a Roman citizen so that one day when they would be freed, they would become a Roman citizen. And so it is different, there's a different nuance of what Peter's talking about culturally um, with slavery. It's not racial, it wasn't a life sentence, it was much more um, economic than we would perceive it to be. And so, even with all that though, we almost expect Peter to say when talking to Christian slaves that they need to revolt against their masters and seek freedom. That seems like the right answer to me. Doesn't it seem like the right answer to you? That Peter should be saying, okay, you guys are slaves. You need to revolt, rebel against your masters, find freedom, and that's what God's desire is for you. And it sounds like Peter is just giving in to all this unjust suffering and wickedness, but this is where we need clarification. And this is where Peter brings this clarification. He says, verse 21, for to this you have been called. In other words, even when you go through unjust suffering and authority in your life, he says, this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Who wants to hear that? None of us want to hear that. Peter just said suffering is a part of the reality of what it means to call ourselves Christian. And yet this was the example that Christ gave us. Verse 22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the realization that Peter is bringing to the church, whether it's in the context of ruling authorities and human institutions or whether it's in the context of employer occupation and, and slave, what Peter is saying is that the crucifixion of Jesus in all of history 
was the most unjust and wicked act that's ever been known to man. Amen, church? That's what we need to acknowledge here. Here was a man who was perfect, who deserved nothing but praise and gratitude, and yet the world rejected God incarnate. And they beat him up and they killed him on the cross. And what I find fascinating here is, is Peter goes back and he, he quotes something. And again, those who were in Sunday school this morning should recognize this. What is Peter quoting here? Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who would die for the iniquities of the world. And so he's quoting Isaiah 53 because Peter is reminding the church, he's saying, God is going to carry out his salvation. God is going to carry out his rescue. How? By being unjustly treated, by being insulted and ridiculed and mocked, by being cursed, going through suffering and death. That is how God is going to bring about salvation to this world. And so, therefore, we're, we're drawn to this realization that somehow, strangely, the sufferings of Jesus and our sharing in those sufferings is how salvation comes to this world, how healing comes to this world. And there's this realization that, wait a second, part of our calling as followers of Christ is to suffer. To suffer. See, we're not in heaven yet, are we? And there's a longing for heaven. There's a longing for the new heavens and earth because of that. But Peter's reminding the church that we are going to have some hard, difficult, suffering days and we deeply need to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we endure those things. And suffering then becomes part of our witness. Suffering then becomes this witness and testimony to the world of what God and Christ is able to do in the midst of suffering. See, the way we show our faith in God's justice the way we show our trust in what God is able to accomplish is by experiencing a joy that is imperishable despite any circumstances that we go through. It's showing that we can't be touched by any threats of this world. It's showing that all the selfless love that we have for others can't be compromised when we have this trust and faith in God's salvation through suffering and oppression. See, here's the thing. Again, Peter says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. So that what? So that you might follow in his steps. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to walk the path of suffering. It means to walk the path of hardship. 
It means to walk the path of submission when everything in us is fighting against it. It means to walk the path of what theologians call the cruciform life, a crucified life. And so Peter is saying there's all these forces culturally, politically, relationally that are beyond our control. There's all these things in this world that can push us and sway us in various directions, and we're living in a culture that doesn't reflect the will and purposes of freedom of God. But he's saying this is where you as a church need to be holy, to be set apart, and to walk the way of Christ. And here's, again, the description. He committed no sin. If you want to walk the way of Christ, are you actually dealing with sin in your life? Are you practicing confession? Are you practicing examination? Are you allowing others to speak into your life to reveal sin to you? What else? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Are you a person who fights for truth? Are you a person who speaks truth? Are you a person who doesn't simply rely on opinions and gossip, but actually fights to be a person of integrity with what you say? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Do you seek vengeance? Do you seek retaliation? When he suffered, he did not threaten. Can you go through suffering in your life with peace? And he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, can you walk through this life and experience injustice, experience evil, experience suffering and hardship, and yet at the same time, Trust in God to make things right. Trust in God to renew and redeem and reconcile all of creation just like he said he would. Or do you take matters in your own hands and repay evil for evil? That's the warning. Now this is hard to believe. It looks from a surface level that this is just Peter's clever way of not confronting the real issues of life, not confronting the injustices that we see, not confronting the authority corruption that we acknowledge. But what Peter is saying here is that he believes, as we should as the church, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the point around which everything else in the world revolves. And that somehow we must see that all the unjust sufferings of God's people, of us as the church, are caught up with the suffering of His Son, Jesus. And just as Jesus walked through suffering and injustice, at the end of the story, Jesus is victorious. And Jesus is vindicated, amen? And Peter's reminding us that we have that same hope. 
that when we walk through the injustices and sufferings and hardships of this life, that we too, not only do we share in the sufferings of Christ, but we also share in His glory. We will share in the vindication that He has received, that is ours in the church. This is what we realize. And so let me close with just a thought. A key commentary on 1 Peter is written by a guy named Ed McClownley, and I love his summary here. He says, whether their neighbors attack or respect them, he's talking about the church here, they can bear what? Witness. We are witnesses to the grace of God by their Christian lifestyle. Quietly and humbly, they can live holy lives, not seeking to claim their own rights, but honoring others. Such humble living is in no way servile or demanding, for Christians know themselves to be the royal people of God's own possession, the chosen heirs of the new creation. They need not avenge themselves, nor need they claim for themselves what is their due. Their trust is in the judgment of God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray to that extent. Gracious God, we come before you as a rebellious people, as a people prone to revolution, as a people prone to fight against evil with evil. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to free us from that. Lord, through all of history, we have seen cycles and cycles and cycles of tyranny and rebellion, of injustice and oppression. Lord, that is truly the history of humankind, and that is why you have spoken so strongly against it in your word. And yet, Lord, we realize that we as sinful beings are so easily caught up in that cycle. We're so easily emulating the culture around us. And so protect us from evil, we pray. Protect us from the evil one and protect us from the evil that we produce so that we can truly be your holy people, a set-apart people, a people that are known for their good, a people that are known to endure suffering, trusting in the God who will make all things right and trusting in the God who exercises perfect justice and perfect judgment. Lord, give us wisdom for the things that we need to fight against. Give us wisdom and when we practice a civil disobedience that honors and glorifies you. Give us wisdom because we have it not on our own. And Lord, we trust that just as you showed grace and mercy to Peter when he made drastic mistakes in his life, yet you used him for the purposes of your kingdom. And we pray that the same would be true of us as your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.